Um, the passage I want to I want to talk about tonight is in John, uh, in John one, and I, I'm starting in verse thirty five, sort of. That, I'm going to reference that, but I'm actually not going to read that. I'm just going to start reading in John chapter two and verse one, and I'm going to read through most of this chapter through verse twenty two. John two. 1 through 22, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he said, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In the book of John, I think that, that, that uh, John is trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, in particular for our sake, for us, the church. It obviously has implications far-reaching beyond that, but I believe that is key to John's argument as he tries to lay out, this is who Jesus is, this is why you should believe he's the Son of God, and these are the implications of that, which I believe he... I think he emphasizes in Jesus' teachings to the disciples there uh, around the last table and in, up to his high priestly prayer in John 17, where he, there's much more teaching, a lot more about what Jesus taught the disciples concerning the church and what was to come that the synoptic gospels don't have, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have. And so John is trying to emphasize this, and, and as he does, I believe he... He uses three or four, I'm sorry, four different testimonies in the book of John to emphasize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He, and, and this idea of testimony is something that's referred to bearing witness, testifying, and, and the noun testimony and the verb bearing witness, which are both used several times, many more times than in any other gospel in the book of John. And so, as, so John is emphasizing this, and I believe in the first chapter he, he tells us eternity's testimony, that is, the, the, in the prologue of his gospel as he explains that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and, and that glorious passage that we know so well through verse 18. But then he, he transitions 
from there into the receiver's testimony as he's emphasized that in John 1, 12 and 13, that to those who believe in him, those who, rece- who do receive him, in contrast to those who reject him, that those who do receive him as the Messiah, as the Son of God for who he is, to them he gives the right to become the sons of God. And I believe in these first few chapters, actually up through the end of chapter 4, what John is telling us is the testimony of those who do receive him. This, these are the words of those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and why they believed indeed he was the Son of God. And so we've got several different people who are talked about here. We have John the Baptist and then the disciples, which is the section that I'm focusing on tonight. Um, after that, in chapter 3, we have Nicodemus, and then we get into um, the Samaritan woman uh, there at, in, in John chapter 4. And I, I believe there's some others too uh, at the end of chapter 4. And so John, John is trying to establish this idea that why would people, you know, why should you receive Jesus Christ as the Son of God? In case you're not convinced by the fact that he, that of what he says in the prologue, listen to the testimony of others that receive him. And we have John the Baptist's testimony that he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and how God, he basically says, God told me that's the guy. So, that's the guy. So that was John's testimony. Then you have the disciples' testimony. And, and I talked last time through, um, through chapter, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, and kind of alluded to this a little bit. But in these verses, I see this come up over and over again. In all the verses that I've read, and even, in, even at the end of chapter 1, we have this continual uh, emphasis on the fact that the disciples were believing. Um, the, uh, we, we have the two disciples who were with John the Baptist in 35 through 42, who John says to them, Behold the Lamb of God, and then they just follow. They just believe John's word. They kind of follow because of the testimony of John. Uh, we also have Philip and Nathaniel talked about in 43 through 51. And Jesus actually, uh, Jesus says to, to Nathaniel, Before Philip called you and under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel says to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He testifies of his belief. And Jesus says, do you only believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree? You're going to see greater things than this. And then, and then we see in chapter 2, the passage that I just read, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but in verse 11 it says that the disciples believed in him. And then again, later on in 22, it says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I think it's even alluded to as well in verse 17 when it says the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal from your house has consumed me. So I, I, I combine all these ideas together and, I, and I'm emphasizing the belief of the disciples tonight. I, and and to, to tie it in with Christmas as much as I possibly can, which, I mean, it's about Jesus, so I, mean, I don't really necessarily feel a necessity to do that. But as I was thinking about this, I thought about the, the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and the last verse of that hymn says, O, o holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in be born in us today. And I think that's, that is really the, the heart of Christmas. It's not just about Jesus coming physically and you know, becoming, taking on the flesh of mankind and living as a man. That is important to it, but it's ultimately about Jesus coming to stay within us. And I think that that's going to kind of build even into chapter 3 of what he's talking about. But the disciples here, they saw something 
about Jesus Christ. And they understood something about Jesus Christ that that caused them to receive the truth of who Jesus said he was and who God revealed Jesus to be. And I think that there's even a contrast in these these verses, especially in the middle of chapter 2, with people who don't receive him. As as we get to the end, we see, well, you want to understand how people who don't receive Jesus think? Well, you'll you'll see that. But but the focus is still, I think, on the, the testimony of the disciples and how they and why they believed. Because of who we are as humans, we all have a tendency to fail in our belief in Jesus Christ. We fail to trust him as we ought to. We fail to believe him as we ought to. I think we fail to receive him for who he says he is. We kind of receive him for who we want him to be, but not who he says he is, not who the word of God presents him to be. Although we know the stories of Jesus' great works and his great words that he preached, we allow our jaded humanity to cloud our belief, to, to get us distracted rather than fully committing our lives to Christ in belief. And, and so what I think this passage focuses on is that we must follow the faithful example, the faith example, really, of the disciples, recognizing that Jesus gave unquestionable proof of his identity that makes him worthy to be believed. The disciples were convinced by what they saw that Jesus is who he says he is and that he deserved to be received as the Son of God. And they make that clear in their testimony here in these verses. And I believe that they believed and received him because they were eyewitnesses to three unquestionable proofs. And let me uh, get into those proofs that I see here. The first one I'm just going to allude to because I've basically already preached a message on this text. But in John 1, 35 through, 40, through 51, I believe they were eyewitnesses to his care for them personally as people. You see, the disciples recognized that, there was, that Jesus cared about them, that he knew them. He saw Nathaniel beforehand. He, he asked them to come and see. He asked those original two disciples to come and see. He renames Simon Cephas. He, so he, he cared about them. I, I mean, he obviously could have done this with anyone. But the fact is, is that he cared personally about them. There was a personal relationship that he had with them and that they recognized. That he rec- they recognized that Jesus cared for them. And, and let me tell you that Jesus cares for you too. He takes care of you. I mean, doesn't it say in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ holds, by him all things consist, all things hold together? That means he's taking care of you today. The fact that you didn't fly off this planet, the fact that your electrons and, and protons didn't separate in the cells in your body, is because Jesus holds it all together. He cares about you. He cares for each one of us. He cares for everyone on this planet so much that he keeps them alive. He maintains life. He keeps everything, he keeps the globe spinning like it should, revolving like it should. He keeps, he keeps the rain coming, the snow coming, the, the warmth, the cold, the seasons, the everything. It's all Jesus. He's in charge of it all. And that, that should show us his care, but that's not the only way he shows us his care. He, he, in his display of his glory and in, the, in, in, his, in his giving of his word and, and you being here tonight is his care for you. 
Because it's just another way that he shows that he wants you to know him by, by even drawing you to this place to hear his word. And so this seems to me to show that Jesus cares about you. Do you recognize that he cares about you? Do, you? do you even think about it on a regular basis or do you just take it for granted? Is it just all about you and your agenda? And, and, and another question, do you, do you show that care for others? I, I notice that they pass on that care, the disciples do. You know, Andrew and the other disciple, who I believe is John, that followed after John the Baptist speaks, they invite Peter to come. Philip finds out about Jesus, and he invites Nathaniel to come. They cared about other people. It wasn't just them. It wasn't just about them. And, and you know, like, oh, good, Jesus cares about me. Oh, yay, now I can, you know, at least I have food to eat. You know, at least I get to hear the gospel tonight. Now, what about others? Do we care about other people? And so I think we can recognize that Jesus cared for them, but this is only the beginning. Because, it, I mean, obviously, it was big in Nathaniel that Jesus cared about him that much to see him as he was sitting underneath the fig tree. And it caused his, it, it, this spurned belief in him. But there was, there's more to it. It's not just that. The second thing I see in this, this story of the wedding at Cana is that the disciples were eyewitnesses to his manifestation of his glory as God. He manifested his glory as God. And this, this caused them to, to believe. This, this strengthened their faith, I believe. And, and this, is, this is important because this, the, even verse 11 in itself, and we'll talk about the story in a second, but in the, that verse, verse 11, where it says, this is the first of his signs. That's, that's the word that Matthew uses to describe miracles. And, and again, it's a word that he uses that the other gospel writers don't. But he, he obviously recognized that there was an importance to what Jesus did in the signs, that the miracles were signs of who he was. And that's the way the disciples understood it. They understood this to be a sign of who he was, to manifest his glory. It was to manifest the fact that he's God. God is the only one who could do this. He's the only one. And so, it ha so the disciples saw it, and they said, this has to be God. And, and I don't think this was the end of their, this has to be God, moments. But this is the one that, that John decides to record. And I think because it's the first one, I think because it's the one that, you know, it, he probably remembered it because it was first. It's probably stuck out to him in that way. Like, there was a turning point there. Th at this point, it was like, okay, there's something different about this guy. We need, you know, we, we have to believe him. He, he's God. He has to be God. So, here, so let's look at the story. Um, you, there's a, a wedding at Canaan. This is the third day, so we've got the, um, the one day is John talking. Or I'm sorry, the one day is the disciples being told by John, there's the Lamb of God, and they follow him. Then the next day is Philip and Nathaniel, and then this is the third day. There was a wedding at, at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, there's a, there's a possibility that it, was, that it could have been like, like a whole town, a whole community probably was invited. It was probably a fairly good-sized wedding when you consider the fact that they had six stone jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons each of water for purification rites. There was probably a lot of people that were going through purification rites if they needed that much water the purification rites. There were probably a lot of people at this wedding. 
And these wedding, these wedding feasts lasted sometimes a week. They were, they were long celebrations for the wedding. And, uh, and so, so that, that's what we find out here. When the, the wine runs out. It says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, so let's, let's talk about what's going on here because this kind of seems a little foreign to us. I think the way Jesus talks to his mom seems weird to us. And also, the, the whole concept of the wine running out. But, um, again, this, this probably lasted a whole week. The fact that they ran out of wine might indicate, some, some of the commentators that I read thought it might indicate that they were a poor family, a poorer family. They also indicated that this would have been a, like a serious social faux pas. Like, you do not run out of wine at a wedding. It's like bad news. I mean, you can get like, you know, you lose all respect and you know, ruins the whole party to run out of wine. And so, so it seems like Mary must have been somewhat close to this family to be invited to the wedding anyway, and obviously Jesus as well. And because they weren't from Cana, so they weren't a part of the community as a whole. They were obviously from outside the community to come to this wedding. And she must have had some sort of connection with the wedding host in some way. And so she, she is concerned about this and she comes to Jesus. And I, I think the reason why she comes to Jesus is exactly the reason you would expect her to come to Jesus. She recognizes who he is. And she wants him to help out. She wants him to perform a miracle. Or, I, well, I don't even know if she wants to perform a miracle necessarily, but I think she recognizes that he can. That he has the capability to do something, to help out in some way. And so, so when she asks this, they have no wine, or tells Jesus this, they have no wine, she's, he's like, Wait, woman, what does that have to do with me? Okay, woman is not an insult. It's not what, you, you know, in their culture, it was probably like saying ma'am. And while that's not, maybe not the way that you would refer to your mom, I will grant you. I don't call. I don't think I've ever called my mom, ma'am. Except maybe there was one time when my dad maybe like threatened me and said, "Say yes, ma'am" or something. But, um, but I don't remember it. So, the, uh, but the fact is that you you don't refer to your mom that way. But Jesus was probably distancing himself in some way from from this, saying, "Okay, there's there's, it's not." Not that he was saying, you know, I don't want you to be my mom anymore or I don't love you as my mom anymore, but more along the lines of just, you know, okay, there's, I'm going a different direction now. This isn't the reason why I came, to get you out of all your family difficulties or to make sure your family doesn't look, you know, socially awkward because you run out of wine. And I think that's what he means when he says, that, what does this have to do with me? It wasn't about that. That wasn't why he came. He didn't come here to get everybody out of their problems that you face in life. And, and maybe that's you know, one way in which you could apply this, that, that, you know, that don't become a Christian to get out of your problems in life. It, it just, that's, that's not the point. And if, if you're a Christian, you know that because you haven't gotten out of all the problems in life. But the fact of the matter is that, that that's, it's a, I mean, that's so selfish. That's, that's all about you. Yeah, I believe in God for what he can do for me, ultimately. And I mean, yeah, there is a benefit to believing in God for you. But if it's all about you, then you're missing the point. And so, so Jesus says this, this isn't really the point. And then he says, my hour has not come yet. This always refers to Jesus' death when he says this. When he talks about his hour, 
It refers to his death and exaltation. um, It's used several times, several other times in in the Gospel of John. And And I like what John MacArthur had to say about this. He says this, He was on a divine schedule decreed by God before the foundation of the world. Since the prophets characterized the Messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally, Jesus was likely referring to the fact that the necessity of the cross must come before the blessings of the millennial age. You know, yeah, there's going to be a point where all of those Old Testament prophecies about wine coming, and and maybe that's what Mary was thinking. You know, Jesus, do your thing. Time to sit on the throne and bring us the wine. You know? And and he's like, no, it's, it's not time for that yet. This isn't, you're missing the point. It's not to get you out of your problems, and it's not about this. There's an hour that has to come yet. And so he's, he's not necessarily thinking that, I don't think he's necessarily thinking that if I do this, you know, everybody's going to know that I'm the Messiah, and they're going to want to, or, the, you know, people are going to start wanting to kill me. I don't think that's the indication here. I think what he's saying, though, is that there's, there's a point to which I, there, I, there's something I have to do before that happens. And I think that, you know, a Jew would have probably been thinking that. I mean, this, you know, the Messianic kingdom... And the blessings of that that are talked about in the Old Testament were on the forefront of those Jews' minds. That's what they wanted out of their Messiah. That's what they were looking for. And again, it was somewhat of a selfish thing. It was, about, it was all about them. And they, did, they missed Jesus because of that. They missed who he really was. And so his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. And so there's these six huge stone water jars there, 20 to 30 gallons each. I, I think... Um, yeah, that they were, they were two or three measures is what the Greek says. So, and each measure was about 10 gallons. So we don't really even know how many gallons exactly, but you figure 20 to 30 gallons, that's a lot of water. And he says, fill them up. Fill them with water. Fill them, and they do. They fill them to the brim. Possibly indicating that, he didn't, that there was nothing else that could be added here. It wasn't like he you know, did some sort of, you know, you know, dump some wine in when everybody wasn't looking to make it taste like wine. You know, it was... This was a miracle that he did. I think that's the emphasis on the fact that it was filled to the brim. And he says to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So they did. And the master of the feast, who was kind, was, wasn't, was, was like a family member, maybe someone outside the family who was kind of like the master of ceremonies in a way. He recognizes that this tastes like wine and that it's good wine. Um, he didn't know where it came from. He just said, he calls to the bridegroom and says, you know, this, usually people wait or serve the good wine first, and then when everybody's drunk, and that, that's and it, actually what he's saying when he says they've drunk freely, he's essentially indicating they wait till everybody's drunk, and they can't really, you know, they don't really care what the wine tastes like as long as it's wine, and then they give them the bad stuff, you know, because then nobody cares. Now, that doesn't necessarily indicate that everybody was drunk at this wedding, Okay but that that was kind of, it seems like that was probably common practice. You know, just because, you know, just because common practice at weddings in, a, in the United States is that there's alcohol freely consumed to the point where people are acting like idiots. That does not mean that just because there's a wedding and a feast that, they're, that everybody's drunk, okay? No one was drunk at my wedding, but we had a wedding and a feast, okay? Sort of a feast, Paul Wester, Paul Wester helped with that feast. I was trying to, David Olson's not even here to harass about that feast. Not that he'd, I'd harass him, it was great. Anyway, I just wanted to give him a hard time. I'd, I'd look back there and he's not there. We're just... 
All right, anyway, so um, that's what happens when you, you, know, you get mentioned from the pulpit. Is he? I hope so. Hi, David. Um, all right, I'm sorry. You get off topic, and then this happens to me in my classes at school, too. All right, so um, I also want to talk about wine here because, you know, I, and I don't want to talk about it a long time because if this passage is not about wine and alcohol, okay? <laughs> that, that's, that's what I want to say about wine. And, and I think that if you try to, if you try to prove that you, you shouldn't drink wine from this passage or you prove that, yeah, you can drink wine from this passage, I think you're missing the point. Okay? That's all I want to say about that. Don't, just don't go here for, for alcohol and Christians and how we should relate to wine. This has nothing to do with it. Okay? Um, so if you want to talk about that sometime, I've got some opinions and I'd love to talk to you about them, but I, I'm not going to talk about it up here. So, so it's, it's not about the wine and whether or not Jesus is a bartender you know, or whatever. You know, like that's the way that people try to portray these types of things. But that wasn't what it was about. It was about what Jesus did and the power that he showed. Because as it mentions there, it wasn't about, you know, it wasn't like, it doesn't say in verse 11, this is the first sign that Jesus did and man, the disciples had a great time after that. Because they, you know, because they drank so much wine and the wine was so good. It, that's not what it focuses on. It focuses on the fact that they believed him and it manifested his glory. Do you see what Jesus was doing was showing himself to be the Son of God. That was what he was trying to do. And if we see anything else about Jesus other than that in this passage, we're missing the point of what John is trying to get you to see. Jesus is God because he turned water into wine. That doesn't happen. Wine comes from grapes. Water, does nev water never turns into wine. You can leave water on your kitchen counter for weeks on end and it will never turn into wine. It will never ferment in any way. It may grow mold on the pitcher, but it will not ferment. It will never turn alcoholic. Nothing, nothing will happen to it, ultimately. It will remain water. So when Jesus turned water into wine, and, it, and, and I mean, this wasn't even a, a long process. It was instantaneous. Jesus turned it into wine. It happened instantaneously. We're not even told how it happened. He just says, draw it out. They, they take some out of the thing, and it's, you know, the guy tasted it, and it's wine. I don't even know... You know, did it change color? Did it not? You know, no, nothing's told to us. It's just that all we know is that whatever, that the guy who, I'm sure he probably knew wine, because he knew the difference between good wine and bad wine, thought that it was wine. Said that it was wine. Only God can do that. That means Jesus is God. That means you have to obey him. That means you don't get a choice in the matter. That means it's not your life. It's God's life. It's Jesus' life. He is God. He is Lord. Obey Him. Give up your way. And don't, don't focus on the wine because then you miss it all. You miss the fact that Jesus is God here. That He did something amazing that no one else could do. And that couldn't be done 
ever again. But that's not the only thing he does to prove who he is. Later on, he goes down to the, ta- the Passover. And in this situation, we see that the disciples were eyewitnesses to his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the Messiah. And, and, and that's, I see that repeated. That idea is repeated in these verses. In verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written. And then Psalm 69 is quoted. And then at verse 22, they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. You see, they were convinced. It, it, so, it, so, so, so Jesus draws them in with his care for them and his personal relationship with them. Then he shows them something that only God can do to convince them that he's God. And then he, and then he says, now look at, I, and, and just in case you didn't get it, I, look at all this Old Testament stuff, the, all the things that you've been looking for, that's me. It points to me. That's essentially what Jesus does here. And he doesn't actually do it explicitly, but I think he does in a way. I mean, I think it implicitly it's there. So they go down to the, tabern- the temple, um, and he finds in the temple those selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons. These would be normal items that were used for sacrificing at the Passover. And, and money changers in the temple. Okay, this was in the temple. Most people believe this was probably in the court of the Gentiles. So a place that was set aside that for Gentiles to worship God because they couldn't get any closer to the temple. And he comes in, makes a whip of cords, drives them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, pours out the coins from the money changers, overturns their tables, and tells those who sold the pigeon, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then the Jews come up to him and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on just a second. What gives you the right to come in here and, put, and do this? Give us a sign. Show us a sign. And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Cryptic. And, uh, and they're like, well, three days? Forty-six years it took to build this temple. And, and one of the commentators I said, I read said that, this, that it was actually still being built at this time. It wasn't finished until like 64 or something like that. I, I don't know the exact year that it was finished being built, but, there was a, but it, it wasn't even done yet. So they'd been working on it for 46 years and weren't even done with it yet. And they're like, you're going to finish it? Tear it down, raise it up in three days? You know, literalists, they, just, they, don't, get, they don't get metaphor. But, um, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. John helps you out in case you don't get it. Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. And they remembered this. They remembered this after he was raised from the dead. Now, let's, let's, let me talk about a few details in here, too. Um, this, this passage kind of creates a little bit of problem because usually we think of Jesus driving out money changers and stuff like that at the end of his life. Uh, all the other Gospels have recorded a similar incident, at least, happening uh, right before the last Passover that Jesus celebrated. Um, and I, I personally believe that this is probably a different situation altogether, that Jesus must have done it twice. 
is my assumption, just because it's, you know, not every detail. John says at the end of his gospel, if we recorded everything that Jesus did, you couldn't even, you know, you couldn't hold the books. The world couldn't hold the books that would, that could be written. So not everything that Jesus did is written down. And the fact that he did something twice shouldn't shock us. You ever done something twice? Um, I mean, even monumental things twice? Yeah, uh, you know, it's not, it's not that weird. I don't think that this proves that the Bible's not true in some way, which um, some people would probably have you to believe. And so, you know, there's not a problem here. I also, though, I wouldn't even necessarily have a problem with this passage. You know, I, I don't demand chronolo- chronology on the gospel writers. I, I really see a lot of themes in the gospels more than I see chronology. And so I'm not really, I mean, if, if somebody said, yeah, they have to be the same event, I'd be like, fine. It doesn't, he doesn't seem to indicate that this happened immediately after the previous event. He said the Passover is at hand. They went down and he even mentions the resurrection at the end. You know, that, that you know, it, it wouldn't shock me if John just decided to record this here because his point is to show that the disciples believed. It's not to give a chronological order of the events of Jesus' life. But that said, I, I, still think it, I still think he probably did it twice. I don't think we have a problem with that either. Either way, it works. And it's fine in Scripture. But I don't, again, I don't think that's the point. Uh, the point is what he says at the end and how the disciples believed. And how this, this was such a big event for him. At least for John. He's like, listen, when I saw this, I knew there was something different going on here. Um, I want to I tell you a little bit about the fact that they were selling these oxen and sheep and pigeons and having money changers there. Um, there were pro- these were probably opportunistic people. That, you know, people were traveling a long distance. Because of the dispersion, people lived long, a long ways away from Jerusalem, longer than they ever had. Uh, obviously, at, um, in, in Israel's time, when they were alive, uh, when, you know, when the temple was there before the exile, that's what I'm trying to say. And so... Um, so basically, you know, they're coming from so far, it was kind of inconvenient for them to have to bring, you know, a sheep for the, for the Passover or a pigeon for the Passover all that distance. And so um, to make that easier, they were selling them. And whether it's the location of the selling or the selling itself that's the problem is somewhat debatable. I mean, I, I personally have a little bit of a problem with anyone, you know, saying, you know, oh, you guys have to have a sacrifice here, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make you pay for it. You know, at one point, I just got done studying First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Um, Josiah has a Passover, and you know what he did when, when everybody came down? He just gave them all sheep. He knew they didn't have sheep, so he just gave them to them. Like 300,000 sheep or 30,000 sheep or something like that was the number of sheep that he just gave away at the Passover so that everybody could have a sacrifice. You know, he wasn't interested in making money on it. He was interested in people worshiping God. Now, Again, I don't know whether the, the major problem that Jesus had, he does focus on the fact that, there was a, that he had made, they had made the house a house of trade. They had made his father's house a house of trade. So perhaps that was the problem that they had. Um, the money changers were needed because the temple tax had to be paid with a, a coin that had a certain, um, a certain value to it or, or the silver had to be a certain purity. And so they had to exchange their coins from all over the world to get the, the silver that was necessary. And they were probably charging something of a, you know, an exchange rate for that. You know, trying to make as much. It, they weren't trying to facilitate worship. I, that, that seems to be the problem ultimately. They weren't trying to facilitate worship. They were trying to 
make money. This is about them making money. And Jesus said, that is not what this is about. You're missing the point. Get out of here. He drives them out. And, and so, the, the, they, they were obstructing the very purpose for which the temple existed. They were, they were turning religion. Um, MacArthur calls it, religion says this, religion had become crass and materialistic. I think uh, in some ways, this, I, you know, these, these passages sometimes hit a little too close to home in America. But, um, but in a way, it, it, you know, that's, that's the truth. That sometimes our, our worship becomes all about, it's become crass and materialistic. It's all about us, how we feel, what we want. You know, well, I don't really like the worship there. It's not really my style. Who cares about your style? What about God's style? Does anybody care about how God wants us to worship? Or is it just about you? Oh, I'm not comfortable with this. Who cares? I mean, ultimately, it's about God. Figure out if God's being worshipped and worship Him. That's what ought to happen. I'm not going to tell you how that works or what that looks like, but that's what you ought to be thinking about when you're thinking about a worship service. Not about how you feel about it. Not about how it makes you feel in general. And so his disciples recognize when this happens. This is an interesting statement that they would recognize this after he does this. That his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And I don't think it's an accident that John places that right there. Right after Jesus does it, and right before the Jews ask their interesting question, what gives you the right to do this? Give us a sign to prove it, that you have the right to do this. Well, Psalm 69.9 seems to be the sign. Hello? The disciples recognized that it was a sign. I mean, you see what's going on here? Here's the disciples saying, whoa, this is a sign. Jesus is the Messiah. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 69.9 says that he's going to, that the zeal for the Lord's house will consume him. <laughs> the disciples saw the sign. And the, and, and the religious leaders say, all right, Jesus, you think you're so special? Come on. Do a sign and prove that you are the one that should be doing this. Jesus is like, what? And he just did the sign. That was the sign. He, he, he could have said that. He actually doesn't say that. Instead, he gives them this cryptic little, this, this quote, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And I think he's purposely cryptic. By the way, this isn't the first time he does this, or the only time in his ministry, whether it's the, it might be the first time. Uh, I don't know. Um, but in Matthew 12, an interesting passage, I just talked about this in school, so it comes to mind. Or it came to mind as I was preparing this. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. But in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38, this is really interesting because in Matthew 12, verse 22, Jesus cast out a demon. And right after that, the, the religious leaders say, oh, that guy's casting out demons by Beelzebul. He's Satan. Okay, that's what they say to Jesus, right? Jesus just cast out a demon and they say he's Satan. And then, this is what they say in verse 38. They come up to him and say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Wait, what? Huh? I just did a sign and you said I was Satan. What do you people want? You know, like, honestly, can you get the sign? I did a sign. But this is, but then he, and this is his answer to them. 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks, a, seeks for a sign. And no sign will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at, this judge, at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater is jo than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you see what Jesus is trying to say here? You guys are going to get condemned in the judgment because you can't get the sign. The only sign that you guys will be able to get is the one that's going to be so obvious that you can't explain it any other way. You can't blame it on Satan. And that's when I rise from the dead. And that's what he says here. I'm not going to give you another sign. I just did my sign. Wait until I rise from the dead. Wait until I rebuild this temple in three days. He doesn't say it explicitly that he's talking about, the temp, about, about his body. Obviously, John tells us that. But the fact is, is that that's what he meant. And, and John makes that clear under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am not giving you a sign. It's not... That is not the point. Jesus doesn't give signs to people who aren't going to believe signs. He just doesn't do that. That's not why he came. He's not a sideshow. That's the way they were treating him. You know, I, all right, Jesus, you really, you know, okay, fine, we'll give you a chance. Do a sign. I just did a sign. Listen, obey, do it. Stop looking for a sign. Hey, Christian in America, stop asking Jesus for a sign for what you're supposed to do. Here is your sign. You see it? It's the Bible. You have it in your hand, in your phone, all over the place. It's on the internet, BibleGateway.com. Go read the sign. Jesus is God, and he's trying to tell you that. Stop doing what you want to do and start obeying him. That's what it's about. The disciples said, there's a sign. Jesus is trying to tell us that he's God. Jesus is trying to tell us that we should obey him. Jesus is trying to tell us that he's going to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, that he's going to rise again like Psalm 16, 8 through 11, where, G where David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, but then he died and his body corrupted. Obviously, David wasn't talking about his body. He's talking about the Messiah's body that would never see corruption because it would rise again the third day. Daniel chapter 9 talks about the Messiah being cut off, but then coming back. The Messiah has to come back even though he's cut off. He had to rise from the dead. The sign of Jonah, cross-reference Matthew chapter 12. It was prophesied, and the disciples knew it, and they believed it. They believed that what was written in the Scripture was true of Jesus. The question is, do you blind yourself to truth because you don't want to listen to it? There's an, there's an awful lot in here that it tells you to do. Some things that probably make you uncomfortable. Some things you probably have to give up that you like a lot. So what are you doing? You, you're blinding yourself to the truth? Come on, Jesus, I need a sign. I need a sign on whether I should really do this or not. I mean, can you give me a sign on whether I should witness to my neighbor, God? I need a sign. No, you don't need a sign. You need to read Matthew 28. Go witness to your neighbor. Yes, here's the sign. If, in, in case you need a sign, this is your sign. This is God. Go witness to your neighbor. 
Okay? I mean, really? Do you need a sign for that? Do you, do you need a sign on whether you should listen to, you know, on, on what, you know, whether you should obey God in any way? No! You've got the sign. Obey Him. Don't, don't dilute the truth. Don't ignore the truth. I think the problem is more that we just ignore it. We just don't read it enough. We don't, wanna, we don't really want to be confronted that much. And so we're just like, mm, no. I think I'll just... That, that would be hard. Sometimes obeying the Bible involves sacrifice. Sometimes it means we have to give up what we, what we really like, some of the things that are really dear to us. And then we're acting like the Pharisees. We're acting like the religious leaders. Come on, Jesus, show us a sign. I just want a sign. No, you don't need a sign. You got your sign, and it's clear and it's true if you understand the word of God. The disciples understood the word of God. They understood what Jesus was doing and they, they believed. They believed. The religious leaders kept looking for the sign. They just kept looking for the sign. And they missed the sign. Are you willing to seek and understand the truth that God makes plain or you're just going to do your own thing? That's the question. The disciples believed. They believed. And you should too. There's great reason to believe that Jesus is the son of God. There's great truth. There's great evidence. In their willingness to die for the truths that they taught, the disciples showed their unwavering faith strengthened through the words and works of Jesus. You know why John was willing to sit, was willing to go to prison and be exiled to Patmos for all those years? It's because he believed that Jesus was the Son of God and he was absolutely convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. You know why Peter was willing to be crucified upside down? Because he knew that Jesus really rose from the dead. You know why James was willing to be beheaded? Because he knew. They knew. Otherwise, they were insane. That's the only other explanation for somebody who would willingly be crucified upside down for a lie that they made up about some guy living again or seeing a hallucination. No, Jesus had to have risen from the dead people. And the disciples believed that he was the Son of God, he is the Son of God, and you need to believe it too. Turn from your sin, turn from your selfishness, and start believing the same thing that the, the disciples believed. They give great proof for the reason of believing you ought to believe too. Recognize that Jesus proves his trustworthiness in his care for you, his personal care for you, his manifestation of God's glory, and his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in fulfilling all of those prophecies concerning the Messiah. And believe him. Trust him. Receive him as the Son of God. Don't just receive Jesus. Receive Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. If he's the Son of God, you have to obey him. You have to do what he wants you to do, not what you want to do. That's what receiving him means. That's what 